You can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Today, as we've been doing every week, I'm going to read the first 12 verses, but we're going to concentrate on verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. While you're turning there, I'll say, it may catch you off guard, but today we are looking at the final beatitude that is descriptive of the believer. Uh, Throughout this study, we've looked at those character traits that appear in the Christian after God has begun a new work within them and given a new heart. And we were clear that these are not spiritual gifts that some Christians have and others do not. These Beatitudes describe the character of the Christian. Uh, They paint a picture of how the one who is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone now is to live. And today we're looking at the last of these, which is the peacemaker. Now in two weeks, uh, me being gone next week, uh, we're going to see verses 10, 11, and 12, those verses on persecution. And those verses aren't so much descriptive of the believer as they are descriptive of the unbelieving world. They show us the reaction that comes from the world when Christians live like Christians. So we can note that distinction. We'll see that reaction in a couple of weeks, but today we're looking at the peacemaker. And really, you can almost see how the peacemaker is the culmination of everything we've looked at so far. All of those other six Beatitudes that have come before. And this is what you have. I mean, you think back. The Christian is one who sees his And her spiritual poverty. That there is nothing in them inherently that would commend them to God. They face their sin and mourn it. They they trust in the Lord and wait on Him, not themselves. They recognize their lack of righteousness. And so they hunger and thirst for it. This Hungering and thirsting makes them merciful to others. It also gives them a single focus in heart towards the Lord Jesus and His Father and the cause of His kingdom. And what follows is the peacemaker. That's what we're going to talk a little more about. But first, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, your Son promised his people a helper who would come and bring to mind all the things that he taught. A helper who would come and continue the work that you have begun. One who would guide us and mold us and fashion us. Father, this helper is your Holy Spirit. 
And we ask that he would be among us and continue this work as we open your word and hear it preached. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Now I want you to be honest. I'll I'll just, I'll get this out of the way at the beginning. When I say the word peacemaker, I know what some of you are thinking of. Some of you are thinking of the 1873 Colt 45. The gun that won the West, that all the famous cowboys carried, was the line, God made man, Sam Colt made man equal. That's obviously not the peacemaker we're talking about this morning. We're talking about about a word that is only used once in all of Scripture. This is the only place in all 66 books of the Bible where you will find the word peacemaker. It's it's interesting. Um, but, But while it is unique, the two words that make up this word are pretty common. We take the word peacemaker and cut it in half and look at the first half. That word peace, what do you think of when you hear it? A country free of war? A church free of persecution? Harmony between people? No fighting? No strife? No trouble? I think that would be the common take. But this word that is translated as peace, doesn't go far enough. The the word in the Greek is irene, the word that is translated here as peace. And to the Greeks, this word meant a condition of law and order that results in the blessing of prosperity. So it's, It is order, restraint, punishment of evil so that society can be civil and flourish. This is why people move to the suburbs, isn't it? (laughs) You're tired of the city, 
not even the suburbs. It just move out in the middle of nowhere. You're tired of the city. You want peace. Uh, you want the law and order that results in prosperity. And that's what the Greeks meant when they used this word. But the New Testament writers had something different in mind. Uh, this word for Matthew, for Paul, for Luke, was closely associated, near identical, with an old Hebrew word you're probably familiar with. The word shalom. Uh, we, We sang about this in our first hymn. Bind us together, bring shalom. For the New Testament writers, there was a very real connection between this Greek word and shalom. So much, in fact, that when you see the word peace in your New Testament, you can ordinarily think of the Hebrew shalom. I'll remind you, shalom is more than just an absence of strife or trouble or war. Shalom conveyed the idea of wholeness and overall well-being. It it didn't mean that you were left quietly alone with no one fighting near you. It meant a complete, whole life. A restored life where everything is made right. To wish someone... Shalom is to wish to them an overall sense of fullness and completeness in all of life. And when we think of this in light of what we saw last week, I mean, it's quite similar. Remember, purity of heart involves the whole person. Loving God with all you are. Seeking His kingdom first. And His righteousness being devoted to, to Him. And that's a similar idea here with Shalom. It is a divine peace that envelops the whole person and brings completeness and fullness to all of life. So that's the weight behind the first half of this word. The second half is much more straightforward. A peacemaker. A, a maker is someone who makes something, if you'll forgive the circular definition. Uh, Someone who acts. Someone who causes something to happen. Someone who produces something or constructs or manufactures something. And this, of course, is someone who is not passive. You can't make a cake by sitting there and looking at the ingredients. You've got to crack eggs and sift flour and turn on the mixer and start making a stack full of dishes to be washed. It involves activity. And a maker is active, not passive. Now combine those two together and you have the peacemaker. A person who is making peace. Making peace. Shalom, actively pursuing wholeness and integrity and soundness and community 
and connectedness and righteousness and justice and well-being of both mind and body and soul. This is a person who wants things to be the way they're supposed to be and, and works and acts hoping that God would use them as an instrument to help make things the way He created them to be. This is a person who wants other human beings to flourish. Not just materially, not just uh, in what they possess, as the Greeks may have used this word, but in, in the whole person. And not just the individual, but also corporately. The peacemaker is one who wants everyone to be in right relationship with each other and in right relationship with God. So this is the idea of making shalom. And we're given a picture of this in Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7. The Lord is speaking to all the exiles who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Get married and have children. And have your children get married and have children. And then he says, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Our English Bibles using the word welfare there. In, in the Hebrew, that is shalom. Now, I find that incredibly helpful as we're trying to define a peacemaker. God says to his people, I have placed you where you are. So go build a home, build a family, and seek the welfare of your neighbor. Pray to me on behalf of your town. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In the peace of our city, we find peace. You know, this means that you have to be around people. I know it sounds counterintuitive uh, that peace is found by seeking the welfare of your neighbor, but that's what God's Word says. I'll talk to friends who are in the ministry and own larger church staffs, and they talk about some of the issues or struggles they have, tension between staff And I'll say, I get along with our staff really well. (laughs) But you have to be around people. You can't just run off and be a monk and live in an abbey out in the middle of nowhere where you can have peace and be at peace to read and pray and just focus on God yourselves. No, the Lord says to actively work for peace within your community. 
Now, maybe you aren't tempted to move to a monastery and take a vow of silence. And so I want to give you another example that might be more fitting. I learned a term recently called the Grill American. Has anyone heard this before? There's a guy named Aaron Wren. I was listening to a podcast and he brought this up. The Grill American. This is a middle class suburbanite. It's not just suburbia. It could also be more rural areas. Corinth absolutely included. And all he wants is to be left alone. Left alone to grill in his backyard and watch football on his big screen TV. He's not all that interested in social problems. He's not an activist for a specific moral position. Now he will become interested if some law or policy begins to affect his football or grilling or ability to be in the backyard. But as long as those are unaffected, he doesn't really care about big societal movements or changes. He simply focuses on small personal pleasures. Now, I am wise enough to not attempt to create the female version of this. I'm not going to do it, but I'm sure you women could do some thinking and figure out what this might be for you. But for the men, the general idea is leave me alone in my backyard with the game on and meat on the pit, enjoying a few well-earned comforts. As long as you leave me alone, I'm happy. Very quickly, Mark and Dawn, please do not cancel our dinner tonight. We very much want to come over and enjoy uh, food off the grill. Okay? The problem isn't the food, it's not the grill, it's not the backyard or the garage. It's the attitude of wanting to be left alone and not caring about what happens out there. It's a problem, first, as we've already seen. God commands us to care about the welfare of our city. We are to work for the welfare of our city. The calling, give, the calling that God gives to his people is not to isolate and be left in peace. So that's the first simple problem. The, the second major problem with this is that there are other people who are working. They're just working in a different direction. Not everyone is sitting in their backyards grilling, just wanting to be left alone. There are lots of people who are activists and are working very hard to promote and institutionalize their particular agenda. A few examples I remember just recently from the news. There are folks who will throw cake at the Mona Lisa. Folks who will scream at a Supreme Court justice while he's eating steak with his family. Folks who will tear down statues in city centers. They cannot stand for them to be standing. 
All because they are actively, passionately, nonstop working towards the accomplishment of their goals. Working towards the accomplishment of their own vision of shalom. And if one side is actively working towards their end, they're so committed they'll throw cake at the Mona Lisa. And then you have the other side just wanting to be left alone. I want to sit in my backyard maybe with a don't tread on me flag hanging up in the garage. Just leave me alone. Who's going to win in the long run? It's going to be the active working side. Who's the person who's not scared to throw cake at one of the most famous paintings in the world. Being a peacemaker does not mean you do your thing and I'll do mine. It doesn't mean as long as I'm left in peace and unaffected, I do not care. We are to seek the welfare of the city where the Lord has sent us. To pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, we find our welfare. And so we're to work so that things might be made as they should be. How do we know what they should be? By looking to God's Word, which is our only standard, or our, our ultimate standard for faith and practice. And so as peacemakers, we actively work and advocate and, and promote. We're, advo- we're activists for shalom. And I know in the PCA especially, we've got this wonderful, clean, neat little bubble with robust theology and the Westminster standards and expository preaching and orderly biblical worship. But Lord, help us from becoming grill Presbyterians. What if we were activists on behalf of grace? What if we were lobbyists for shalom? For the whole world being made whole and complete, being the way God intended it to be? What if we promoted and advocated for the finished work of Christ that is credited freely to those who receive Him by faith? What if we did that to the same extent that other groups lobby Congress? How about starting conversations with others who think differently? And instead of having the attitude of, well, they do their thing, I'm going to do my thing. How about encouraging them to consider another better way? We're familiar with the term waging war. What would it look like to wage peace upon the world around us? It's being a peacemaker. Now, I think the next logical point is this. No one is naturally this person. What, what comes natural to us? I just watch my children interact, and you'll see. 
fighting, strife, quarreling, selfishness, tension. How do we explain the issues in the world? How do we explain the invasion of Ukraine? Is it just failed foreign policy? Or is it the sin that is residing in the human heart? I mean, we can understand and make foreign policy really simple. Nations behave badly because they are run by sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented here saying, the explanation of all our troubles is human lust, greed, selfishness, and self-centeredness. It is the cause of all the trouble and the discord, whether between individuals, groups, or nations. And he continues by saying, you cannot understand the problem of the modern world unless you accept the New Testament doctrine with regard to man and sin. We are by nature sinners and therefore not peacemakers. Scripture says that by nature we are enemies of God, children of wrath. The natural mind is hostile to God. And so before we can make peace with others, we need to be at peace with our Creator. We can't do what the Lord was talking about in Jeremiah 29 unless we are at peace with Him. We can't be peacemakers unless we know and embrace that we are poor in spirit. We can't be peacemakers unless we mourn our own sin and trust in the Lord alone. So how then are we made new people who can live this new life? Well, we see in the Scriptures that our God acted. He was not passive. He acted. God the Father sent God the Son to come into this world and be a peacemaker. Remember, one of the titles ascribed to him in the Old Testament is Prince of Peace. At his birth, the angels declared glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Why would they say that? Because the Son of God came to make peace. He came to bring shalom. And this caught everyone off guard. It it caught them off guard specifically because He would accomplish this peace by dying. The Jews of His day knew that the Messiah would bring peace, but their idea of peace was material, worldly peace. They wanted the Romans gone and they wanted Israel to be the top dog on the international stage where there would be no more war and Israel's citizens would know peace because of the nation's strength and influence. That's what they wanted. That's what they were expecting. 
But that was not God's plan for making peace. Rather, it would be accomplished through the Son of God dying on the cross. He came to die so that His own would be reconciled and at peace with God. Isaiah 53 speaks of this saying, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Colossians 1.20 says that peace was made by the blood of the cross. The Son of God saw the severity of our problem, and He did not stay in heaven He didn't appease. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't say, you live your truth and I will live mine. He acted and made peace by his blood. He sacrificially, aggressively brought peace to those in need. And he accomplished this for his bride, the church, by taking the punishment due her sins and covering her in his righteousness. As stated earlier, shalom is way more than just simply being saved from judgment and hell. It includes everything being as it should be, which includes forgiven sinners being more than simply forgiven, but being made heirs and children of God. Christ Jesus has bound His people in cords of everlasting love, and they have been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Him. So that goodness and mercy would follow them all the days of their life, and they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The peacemaker has made his people children of God. Paul writes in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Or in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has killed the hostility and reconciled us to God. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is what our Lord has done for us. And having found this peace, having been made heirs, we are to long for others to find that same peace. And more than long, we are to work, to be active, that our neighbors may join us as members of the household of God. Sinclair Ferguson remarked that in Christ we have the gospel of reconciliation 
We are given by God the message of reconciliation. And we are to go about the world beseeching, appealing to men and women to lay down their arms because there is a reconciled and reconciling God in heaven through His Son who bids them to no longer be estranged but to come and to take the opportunity of the mercy in the heart of God that will bring them into a knowledge of the peace of God. Seek the welfare of the city where he has sent you. Be activists for the gospel of reconciliation. He has given us our talking points and our platform. And it's to plead that men and women would lay down their arms, that they would turn, cease suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and be reconciled to God through His Son who died to make peace by His blood. Now, If you are like me, you may feel unqualified for this work. You may think, if only the Lord was here to help me in this work of being a peacemaker, I I, I could do it. I'll leave you with a thought from John 14. John 14 begins with the Lord Jesus saying those famous words we all know so well Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. He's telling them, I am working towards your final, ultimate peace. I'm going to depart and return to heaven, but I'm still working for peace. And one day it will come and all creation will know my shalom and everything will be made as it should be. But until then, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever the Spirit of truth. And He, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then then Jesus says these words to His disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That's what enables us to seek the welfare of others. The peace of Christ dispensed to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that spirit of truth will mold us more and more into a peacemaker. He will mold us more and more into a gentle, humble, loving person. He will produce within us the ability and wisdom to know how to work for the welfare of the city. 
And he will give us the courage to not lie and say that there is peace when there is no peace. And he'll strengthen his people to endure the scorn and reaction of the world to our peacemaking. So as God's children, as those who have been given the peace of Christ, as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, may we work towards peace in a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this peace that our Lord speaks of, this peace that has been given to us, is not cheap. It was purchased by the very blood of the Son of God, and yet He dispenses it to us. Father, would you strengthen and enable us to follow his example and to be peacemakers? Would your spirit so fill us and empower us that we would be those who work for your peace and your shalom in the city where you have placed us? And we ask that we would do this for the good of neighbor and ultimately for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.